The world is old and the powers are weary. The god at the door of night has fallen and the great enemy of the world has come back from the timeless void. The shadow has awakened the great evils to regain dominion over Ardar. Darkness shall cover the land if not for the deeds of a small fellowship of elf friends. Join the players of this Dungeons and Dragons campaign as they fulfill the events of the Dagor Daggeron prophecy and strive with Morgoth on the plains of Valinor. Welcome to the Undying Lands in Part 3 of the Inglorian Bastards Trilogy, Trials of the Valar. Well, um, so, so you know, this might actually be a good segue. Um, you, you mentioned mortality, um, and, and um, so I'm going to... I'm going to ask you about um, one of your essays um, called "The Body in Question: uh, yeah. The Unhealed Wounds of Frodo Baggins," which I've mentioned already. Right. Um, and and one of the reasons I picked this essay to talk about was because um, in our story we have um, we have one of our characters who was stabbed with a morgul blade um, and ended up um, essentially going across the straight road, um, trapped with a a Maiar of sorts, um, and it changed him, and he was um, damaged, in a, and I think in a way, kind of like Frodo Baggins. In, in, in our story, his name was Riken, um, and he uh, he was a woodman. And uh, in, in reading your essay, you know, I it talked it talked a little bit about um, Frodo and 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 what happened to him. Even the the fact that he traveled across the straight road in the end and and ended up in Amman. And, um, you know, he was still mortal, you know, he still perished yes. and he still suffered. And so, so I'm wondering, um, about, you know, like all of your essays that they, they touch on things that are super interesting, right? Things that, you know, maybe you haven't thought about things that don't happen very often in the text. And this is one of those cases, right? Where you, you have this, this mortal, this first, the second born, excuse me, of, of Iluvatar, traveling across the straight road is there any sense that we get um when a when a mortal comes to to the undying lands that their lifespan is extended no their lifespan is not extended they die like everybody else Mm -hmm. um undying lands refers to the elves who live there they are undying setting foot on that land does not confer immortality and if you read the letters, Tolkien was unequivocal because a lot of people wrote to him and said, what happens to Frodo? Yeah. He dies. He goes to the Undying Lands, and, and I'm quoting this directly. It's at the top of the right-hand page, left-hand page. He goes to be healed if that were possible. Mm-hmm. Or he died. That would be true for anyone, including Riken in our story. What Tolkien does to Frodo is the cruelest thing I think an author has ever done to his hero. He puts he puts Frodo through unbelievable tortures. He gives him post traumatic stress. He sends him on an errand that by its nature is doomed to fail. He has it fail. And then he sends Frodo home. A fail. To, to live with that the rest of his life. Yeah. To live with the knowledge that he 
he blew it at the last minute with the knowledge that, like all wounded veterans, you can't go home because you're not who you were. Um, he loses his innocence, his home, his his sense of who he is, and he loses the ring. And uh, you wrote, I think, in the essay, too, you know, when he got back to the Shire for a short time, he wasn't even really, you know, regarded. The, the scope of what he had accomplished wasn't even right. really recognized. <clears throat> like most returning vets, nobody back home could possibly understand what he had been through. Mm -hmm. Tolkien had been in war and he knew what it was like to have seen combat and then come home to civilian life there's an unbridgeable gap it's it's funny talking about um, the suffering and the, and the dying um, you know um, that's exactly what we've talked about when we've talked about Riken in the past and um, you know he in some ways he's the most tragic of all of our characters just based on what he went through and um, um, we, we never alluded to the fact that he was going to live forever in the story, but it's, it's fun to sort of talk about, um, you know, the nature of the undying lands and, 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 and what that would mean for mortals. Real immortality you get is through the stories that people tell about you. Ah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, that's true. Frodo lives. Frodo lives. Well, let's let's let me ask you. Uh, let me let's switch gears to a different topic now. Um, and this one, this one could be, <laughs> this one could be a very simple answer. I don't know, but um, in in your one of your newer books, uh, a, a newer uh, collection of of essays uh, called "There Would Always Be a Fairy Tale," um, uh -huh. you wrote you wrote about an essay called "Drowned Lands." Um, and this one, of course, is about Numenor, which we've we've mentioned just briefly. Um, and, and in our story, um, we're, we're kind of approaching um, something that we'll talk about in a little bit called the Dagger Daggerath, where um, and, and in our story, the, the characters have to um, do what I'm calling Trials of the Valar, which is what part three of the story is called. And it's essentially, you know, um, when when the the quote um, powers of the world are weary, um, and it's this. The sense that Morgoth is going to come back, and there's these trials, these tasks that the Valar ask um, uh, our characters to do, um, both to fulfill the the, prof the second prophecy of Mandos, and um, and to sort of bring about the the final battle. Um, one of the trials that they do um, takes them to Menel Tarma. Of course, this is after the breaking of the world. And and so what I'm you know I've discussed with other scholars some of these these fictitious things that I've created and and, and sort of their plausibility based on you know time and the lore and and I'm wondering Menelthorm of course being the highest point of Numenor is is this something um, based on the text based on your research. Um, was it possible for sailors to to find Menelthorma and and to find what was left sticking up above the water of Numenor? I think he writes somewhere about it. You can cite it from a far off. I couldn't find the reference to that when I was mm -hmm. looking the books, but I do have a memory of somewhere 
somewhere in the history of Middle Earth. Not just saying that it's possible to see it. I thought so. Yeah, I, and you know, there there hadn't, as far as I could tell, been any records of of sailors coming back saying they found it, right? But I, I thought that that was the you know, Metal Tarma, of course, being the place where the Numenorians could look out and on a clear day see Erisea, right? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So that so one of the one of the trials is for them to to seek out Metal Tarma. Um, well, it's it's good to know that maybe I wasn't completely wrong in that storyline. <laughs> so, so in your essay, you talk about um, how Numenor was this. Um, you know, obviously it has uh, Atlantean sort of roots, but but on top of that, what I don't think most people will know is that um, Tolkien would have known about and studied some of these these uh, Celtic flooding myths. Is that correct? Oh yeah. He certainly would have known about those. And if he was really trying to create a mythology for England, then it would make sense that somewhere in the story, this idea of the land being swallowed up by the sea would have to, um, would have to be accounted for. Hmm. When... Um I had, uh, I think it was Michael a Drought on, on the podcast. We talked about, you know, uh, Tolkien's sort of philological background and how he would often take, you know, conflicting things. Um, uh, you know, where where scholars would argue, oh, you know, like Bayorn was the example he used, and about how his name means warrior or it means bear, depending on who you talk to. And Tolkien was like, no, it. Uh, we're going to create a story, and it's going to mean both, right? So, was this was this just another case of of Tolkien sort of saying, um, in my story, we're going to bring together all of these myths? Was that was that what he was trying to do with his Numenor? He was he was trying to fill in a gap of the English, mm-hmm. um, not bring them together, but write his own version of that kind of story. There's one in Ireland, there's one in Cornwall, there's one in Brittany. Uh, And then, of course, Tolkien himself had the recurrent dream of the Great Wave, which he called his Atlantis Auntie. So he, um, he, I think, really felt that in some way he had some strange distant memory of such an event. And he said he didn't know whether his father might have had the same memory because his father died when he was two and couldn't talk to him about it. But he did find out rather later that one of his sons had the same dream. So he felt that it might have been a kind of racial memory passed down. And that's how you get from one period to another, and from the present to the past, through your memory as it takes shape in dreams. So you mentioned this um, in when we were talking about um, the Lost Road, um, and you also mentioned this sort of dream memory uh, in one of your other essays called The Curious Incident of the Dream at the Barrow, Memory and Reincarnation in Middle-Earth. Um, and, and it's actually, um, 
one of the the major topics that I wanted to talk to you about was in a sense dream. Um, it was is um, the the allure and male is one was one of the topics that I was very interested in talking about. What you were saying about the, the lost road actually reminded me quite a bit of uh, of this path of dreams. Um, uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the allure male. The the allure male in our story um, originally, I believe, in the in the um, the Book of Lost Tales, it's mentioned um, where it's uh, this this uh, sort of early concept of a of a pathway where mortal uh, you know human children uh, come over to to Arisea and and they uh-huh. they come uh-huh. to the cottage of lost play and, and have stories and supper with Lindo and Barre. But you know, I, I was wondering if if you think in, in terms of um, just the nature of the Alore Male that whether it could be used to actually physically travel from place to place, either by the Valar or by any other Maiar or, or possibly even, you know, mortal characters. Perhaps, Jared, my understanding of it is that it's only mortal characters ah. to whom that path is accessible. My overall impression is that Dream was a vehicle for mortals to travel back into the past, whether it's their personal past or a longer and deeper past taking back into history. When he wrote to his publisher trying to describe first the Lost Road and then the Notion Club papers, he said, this is a time travel. My vehicle is dream, and my heroes are two Englishmen who dream themselves back through time until they get to Numenor. Mm-hmm. And he laid it out. They go back through medieval history, into the Dark Ages, into the Ice Age. Uh, and on beyond until they get to Tolkien's own mythology. But it's it's mortals who do that. You know, in hearing you talk more about this, the the, the more I think uh, there is a there is some sort of connection there, some sort of concept conceptual connection between, you know, his uh some of some of the things he wrote about in The Lost Road and The Path of Dreams. Oh, a, there's no question. Yeah. He was writing from experience, um, but but again, it's um, it's a it's a way for for human beings to travel back into uh, their history and into Tolkien's own mythological history, <laughs> and and there was precedent for this kind of thing. There was a very popular nineteenth century novel called Peter Ibbotson about a man and a woman uh, separated in real life who conduct their whole love affair through their dreams. Ah. I think there's even a uh, a modern TV series uh, about that, if I'm not mistaken. I'd be surprised. Yeah. Um, well, I, I've kept you for 52 minutes so far, so um, I want to transition to one of the last sort of large topics um, that I asked you uh, to, to discuss with me, and that would be um, what about what I've alluded to already, and that's the the Dagor Dagoreth, the, the 
The last battle. The last battle. What do you want to know? <laughs> well, when I read this, you know, the Inalindale, there are parts of the Inalindale that make me think, you know, even though it's kind of common belief that he's abandoned this idea of this last battle, the second coming of Morgoth, or what is it, the third coming of Morgoth, uh, uh, I, there are parts that I read just even in the first chapters of the Silmarillion that make me think he didn't. He was still thinking about this. He was still planning for Morgoth to come back at the end of days. Well, if he brought it to an end, it would end. Yeah, yeah. And there would be no more. Uh, one of his earliest biographers, Humphrey Carpenter, uh, speculated that he couldn't end it uh, because then it would be over. Hmm. But his models, and the two biggest one were the Book of Revelation and um, the Voluspa, which is the Icelandic prophecy of the Seeress. Both have, both talk about a last battle that is going to happen. Mm -hmm. But it's always going to happen. Never that it already happened and now everything is over. Because that would, in a way, that would defeat the power of it. So you have Turin Tarambar. Get back that sword. Kill Morgoth. And then close the book. It's over. Yeah, it's a happy ending. <laughs> what do you do then? The happy ending is, and they live happily ever after yeah but that's left to the hearer <laughs> well let, let, let's go on uh, i have one last thing um and this is uh this is a different book of essays um and this is not written by you but this was written in honor of you it's called a wilderness of dragons and i think oh, this will be that lifts book yeah this will this will be a, a great um a great way to sort of end our interview and um I, I've I've skimmed this. I've not read through it yet, but but it, it seems to me that they were trying to do you a great honor by by listing some of their great. Uh, there, there's, this is a collected works from several different people of of yeah. just wonderful essays, um, and it's just you know reading through it, it's clear how much influence you've had um, over people, um, and and just how how moved people are were by by just being around you and and um one of the things that, that carries through this is just the way that you've listened uh to people over the years well, i have I could... learned more from my students than they ever learned from me <laughs> well I, i'm looking forward to reading this um so for the listener it's called a wilderness of dragons essays in honor of verlin flieger looks amazing grateful to john for doing it it's a it's a terrific book there's some really good essays in there. Well, I, after talking with you, my library has doubled in size now, things <laughs> I have to read. Um, but I want to thank you for, for coming in, on this journey with me and, and chatting about these things. Um, I know it's probably a, a little different than what you're used to discussing, but we really appreciate having you. Oh, it was my pleasure. I loved every minute of it, and I thank you for inviting me. Though this marks the end of the episode, the road goes ever on. Until next time, join us at longwinded.one 
and consider giving us a review on Apple Music, Spotify, or really whichever platform you choose. <laughs>